Hey, we're going to start a four-week series right now on the subject of grace. We're going to be doing this throughout the month of February. That's a word that maybe some of you are very familiar with, and it's also a word that probably some of you are not at all familiar with. It's one thing to explain grace. Um, It's another thing to experience it. Most people who lived in Israel at the same time Jesus did knew what that word meant, Uh, uh, as do most of us who have a church background. Grace is a gift uh, given to someone who did nothing to deserve it. It's an act of kindness that is motivated by the heart of the giver despite the unworthiness of the receiver. Every um, first century Palestinian Jew knew that because it was a prominent theme in Hebrew scripture. I mean, they knew that God was gracious because that's what their Bible said again and again. Ever since the Lord passed in front of Moses on Mount Sinai and described himself as a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, they, they, they used that same cluster of attributes to describe him. Even when they abbreviated the description, the word gracious always made the cut. God was the one who, more than anyone else, had a reputation for what we might call grace bombs. History was cratered with memorable moments when God gave surprising gifts to people who did nothing to deserve them. Like Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who was infertile, so long past menopause that no one in their right mind would think for a moment that she would ever get pregnant. And yet God kept promising that old couple that they would become parents. The last time he did it was when Sarah was 89 years old. And she laughed at what to her had become a cruel joke. But sure enough, Genesis 21 says, the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and he did for her what he had promised. At the age of 90, she gave birth to a son. And as it turns out, a nation. That's what you call a grace bomb. That nation grew to number in the millions. For 400 years, they were enslaved in the land of Egypt. But then God raised up Moses to lead them out of bondage into a land flowing with milk and honey. Those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness were marked by two things. Their grumbling and God's grace. Finally, when they were just a river crossing away from the promised land, they decided to head back to Egypt. Nehemiah 9 says that they failed to remember the miracles God had performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But that passage says God did not desert them because he is a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He brought them into the promised land despite their sinfulness. He he grace-bombed them. Later, the prophet Jonah was commanded by God to go to a wicked city called Nineveh to warn them of impending judgment. And you all know the story. Instead of going east toward Nineveh, he boarded a ship going west. And the weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed until Jonah was tossed overboard and swallowed by a freakishly large fish who three days later vomited him back onto dry land, 
God repeated the command to go to Nineveh, and this time Jonah obeyed it, but he did so with an attitude. He spent three days walking around the city, warning of God's judgment, and to his dismay, the people repented, and God relented. And Jonah was ticked off because he wanted the Ninevites to get what they had coming to them. He said to the Lord, I knew this was going to happen. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew you were going to grace bomb them. The scriptures were full of stories like that. So if you were to say to a first century Jew that God is gracious, they would probably have said to you, yeah, so tell me something I don't know. Their problem was not intellectual, it was experiential. You see, they were living in a time when God had not dropped a grace bomb in 500 years. So for them, grace was more of a theological concept than it was a life-changing reality. It was a lesson you learned at synagogue between six-day stretches of grace-starved life. But when Jesus showed up, suddenly grace became more than an antique religious word. It became a real-life force that changed everything and everyone that it touched. The first hint that, that grace had once again invaded planet Earth is at a wedding feast. Jesus is, the, is a guest there. His mother, Mary, is also there. And an embarrassing thing happens. The host family runs out of wine. So Mary nudges Jesus. Jesus says, no. Mary ignores him. She calls the servants over and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. And Jesus sees these six 25-gallon stone jars off in the distance and he says, go, go fill those jars with water and they do so. And then he says, go ladle out some of it and give it to the host of the, of the banquet. And, and, and they do that. And, and this host, you know, swirls and sniffs and slurps that wine and he calls the groom over and he whispers to him everyone else serves the good wine first and then when everybody's drunk they bring out the cheap stuff but not you you save the best for last that was a grace bomb that teetotalers have been scratching their heads over ever since and then there's this this, this conversation that Jesus had with a woman at a well about living water. Now, she's off limits for social interaction, being a woman from the Samaritan side of the tracks, who had been married five times and was now living with a man who was not her husband. But Jesus breaks the rules and engages with her anyway. He tells her about living water that wells up to eternal life. And he says that he will give that water to anyone who asks including her. And she doesn't know what to do with this man who seems to know everything about her and yet offers her such amazing grace. All she can do is run back to town and tell everyone, I think I might have just met the Messiah. And then there's the day that Jesus set off a grace bomb in a fisherman's boat, telling Simon Peter to go fishing after all night being in the water and catching nothing. 
And he listens to Simon explain to him why there's no way they're going to catch any fish. It's going to be a waste of time. He watches Simon go out with his friends into the deeper water and then haul in so many fish that both boats were so full that they were about to sink. And then Simon Peter falls on his face before Jesus and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says to this guy who had just failed the apostolic entrance exam, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. How do you respond to such grace? You just drop everything, and you follow this guy. And you watch him touch person after person with the same grace and power. A man with leprosy, who's been living in isolation ever since his diagnosis, untouched for who knows how long, his flesh slowly rotting away, comes to Jesus as close as the law allows and and, and says to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus ignores the law and walks up to the man and touches him and he says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately, the Gospel of Luke tells us, the leprosy leaves him. And Jesus orders him not to tell anyone. So what does he do? He goes out and tells everyone. What else would you expect? He's just been grace-bombed. And then Luke tells us about a a paralyzed man. He's, he's, He's being carried by four friends, each one gripping a corner of this guy's mat, trying to get to this house where Jesus was. But as they got close, they couldn't get anywhere near Jesus because the house was packed. There was a crowd around the house. There was no way they were getting in. Nobody was willing to budge. And so finally, in desperation, they hoist this guy up onto the roof of the house and they begin tearing away tiles off the roof until there's a hole large enough for them to lower this man in front of Jesus. And Jesus loves it. He says to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. And these four guys whose heads are poking out over the hole are going, that's great, but it's kind of irrelevant because what we really came for was healing. And so Jesus gave him that too. That man came to Jesus being carried on a mat and he went home carrying the mat. Grace. So there was this guy named Levi who'd been watching Jesus in action but from a distance because, well, because he was a tax collector. Sometime earlier in his life, he had made a decision to follow the money. You collect taxes from your fellow Jews for the hated Romans, and you're not going to have many friends. But it does pay well. Maybe at first you just collect whatever is due, but nobody thanks you for being honest. In fact, they think you're being dishonest. So, so why not just pad the tax and pocket the extra? Maybe there had been times when Levi regretted the career path he chose, but it was too late to change. So he just thickened his skin and deflected the contempt of his neighbors. His was a life of lucrative days and lonely nights. That was the no-going-back life that Levi chose. And so when the Messiah showed up and he started grace-bombing everyone, Levi knew that he had long since forfeited the right to get in on it. How could he have ever predicted that Jesus was actually targeting people just like him. 
Luke 5.27 says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. And instead of passing by, he stopped. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And there must have been like a smile, a gaze, a countenance that was just as inviting as Christ's words because Luke says that Levi didn't hesitate. He got up, he left everything and followed Jesus. He wasn't about to miss his one and only chance to start over. And I love what Luke says next. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. It was a grace fest. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, these were the religious leaders of the day, they complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why is this so-called Messiah drawn to those who don't deserve his favor rather than those who do? And Jesus just shrugged and said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's as if he preferred grace-bombing the unworthy to rewarding the worthy. And then there was this woman who, like Levi, thought that her track record disqualified her from getting close to God. She heard rumors about Jesus, that he was a holy man who gave unholy people a clean slate, that perhaps he was even the Messiah. And, and even though he never singled her out and looked her in the eyes and told her she was forgiven, she dared to believe that despite all she had done, he might give her grace. And when she believed that, something changed. She felt different, lighter, almost like she'd gone back in time before all those regrettable decisions she had made. She felt forgiven. She felt clean. And she didn't know how Jesus could do that for her, having never even met her, but somehow he did. And then she heard that Jesus was in town, having dinner, in fact, at the home of a Pharisee, a man she knew, a man she knew would never invite her into his home. But she didn't care. All she knew was that Jesus was there. And so she grabbed her most precious possession, an alabaster jar of perfume, and she barged right into that home, right into the dining room where Jesus was reclined at the table, leaning on his elbow, with his legs stretched out behind him. And Luke 7 says that as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she bent down and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And, and when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he was appalled. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Although he didn't speak out loud, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. 
Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon knew where this was going. He replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus looked into that woman's eyes and said to her what she already knew in her spirit. Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How do you explain the socially awkward behavior of that woman? Very simple. She had been grace-bombed. She who did not deserve anything from God got from him a brand new life. And the grace just kept on coming. A man possessed by a legion of demons went from being naked and insane to being dressed and in his right mind. A woman who had been sick for 12 years and had spent all her money on doctors who could not cure her touched the hem of Christ's cloak and was healed instantly. A 12-year-old girl was dead one moment and alive the next, lifted to her feet by Jesus. Vision was given to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb, a feast to the 5,000. You've never seen so many irreligious people praising God or so many religious people criticizing Christ. Grace bombs were dropping everywhere, strafing the the conventional wisdom that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. And the righteous, those who had worked so hard to earn God's favor, thought it was scandalous. They had to do something to expose Jesus as a law-breaking, phony Messiah. If they could just find someone who had committed a capital offense, they could paint Jesus into a corner by forcing him to render a verdict. And as luck would have it, or because their scheme worked, they caught a couple committing adultery. A man, a woman, at least one of them married, but not to the person that they were in bed with. It was perfect. The man, they had no use for. He had done his job, but the woman barely had time to cover her body before they were grabbing her by the arm and marching her to the temple where they knew Jesus was teaching. John 8 says that they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, 
Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And then verse 6 states the obvious. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Don't you want to peer over his shoulder and see what he wrote? But let's just stand back and and see the whole scene. Here's this humiliated woman. These ravenous religious leaders clutching chunks of limestone. Observers eager to see how the plot is going to unfold. And Jesus is in the middle of it all, squatting down and tracing some kind of invisible pattern on the stone tiles of the temple floor with his index finger. Just like the finger of God inscribed the Ten Commandments on those two stone tablets, including the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And the text says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, a line that most of us could repeat by heart. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up. And asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Grace bomb. A gift given to someone who did nothing to deserve it, an act of kindness motivated by the heart of the giver despite the unworthiness of the receiver. And then came more healings, changing everything for a man born blind, a man made mute by demons, a woman crippled for 18 years, 10 quarantined lepers, and parables about a lost sheep, lost coin, a lost son, and rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And a resurrection, Lazarus, dead for four days, obeying Christ's command to walk out of his tomb. But the Pharisees are still seething. Blind to the irrefutable proof of Christ's deity, they cannot get past his reckless disregard for righteousness. How could he ignore the camel-sized sins of others and point out the gnats? in their near-perfect performance. It was just beyond them. Why was he so nice to the bad guys and so hard on the good guys? What did he have against them? Luke 18 gives us a clue. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. Why, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified, went home innocent, went home guiltless, went home righteous before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So there it is. The key to getting right with God and being welcomed into heaven is not holiness, but humility. Well, there's nothing wrong with holiness. That's a good thing. The problem is that we delude ourselves into thinking that we can be holy enough to earn a passing grade from a perfect God. That's like trying to jump to the moon. So there has to be another way. And there is. It's called grace. But grace is a humility-seeking missile. It only lands on those who know they need it. And did that parable melt the Pharisees' self-confidence? Nope. Just made them all the more determined to rid the earth of this heretic. And ultimately, they accomplished their goal, temporarily, never realizing that it was through the execution of Jesus that the plan of God was fulfilled. See, as it turned out, God agreed with the Pharisees that sin must be punished and righteousness must be upheld. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The wages of sin is death, and so Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, pun the punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the Pharisees watched Jesus let people, let him off scot-free. And they said, what gives him the right to do that? But they did not realize that Jesus was not going to let any sin go unpunished. It's just that he was the one who was going to pay the price. That's what gave him the right to grace bomb sinners. Like the thief on the cross next to him. That man admitted that he was being punished fairly. He was getting what his deeds deserved. He knew that he had no right to ask. And yet he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus had every right to grace bomb him with the words, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. But as lavish as grace is, there has to be a limit to it, right? 
That's what Simon Peter thought after he had received so much grace from Jesus and then abandoned him to save his own skin. Why, he even denied that he knew Jesus, not once, but three times. And Jesus had said very clearly, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So Peter knew that he had disqualified himself, not not just to being used by God, but even to be accepted by God. Even after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to him personally, that fisherman whose life had been so transformed by Jesus, knew that all was lost. And he did the only thing he knew to do. He went back to his old life, his old boat. That boat that had been filled to the brim with fish the day that Jesus said to him, follow me and I will use you to fish for people. He and six other disciples, who also had bailed on Jesus, went fishing. John 21 says that they cast nets all night long, but caught nothing. In the morning, a strangely familiar voice called to them from the shore, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped in the water. I love that. Peter was like the sinful woman with the jar of perfume. He just couldn't help himself. As guilty as he felt, he couldn't wait to get to Jesus. But when he got there, he couldn't look him in the eye. Jesus had built a, a charcoal fire. Same kind of fire, actually, that Peter warmed his hands over the night that he denied Christ three times. And Jesus asked for some of the fish they'd caught, and he cooked breakfast for them, and all seven of them ate the breakfast silently, heads down. And finally, Jesus spoke. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So how many times had Peter denied him over the first charcoal fire? Three. How many times did Jesus recommission him over the second charcoal fire? Three. 
once for each denial. That is what you call a grace bomb. It's something that Jesus is willing to drop on just about anyone, except those who feel no need for grace because of delusional overconfidence. Which means that the Pharisees were out of luck, right? You'd think. But every time we try to put a limit on God's grace, we are proven wrong. Because there he is in Acts 9, Saul, the anti-Christian uber-Pharisee who is on a mission to imprison every follower of Jesus he can find. He is not about to bow his knee to Jesus voluntarily. And so Jesus humbles him involuntarily by blinding him and knocking him on his rear end on the road to Damascus. Saul can't see a thing, but he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It was a bomb, all right, but it sure didn't feel like a grace bomb. For three days, Saul, in his blindness, had time to let the truth sink in. His crusade against Christians was evil. He was not righteous. He was a sinner. He was the worst of sinners. And so there was a knock on the door on that third day, and Saul thought, okay, here it comes. I'm about to get what I deserve. And he feels a pair of hands on his head. And then he hears these words. Brother Saul, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And the scripture says at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Soon his name was changed to Paul and that former Pharisee became the most zealous trophy of grace that this world has ever seen. You think you don't deserve to be grace-bombed? Who does? But that's exactly why Jesus does it. Grace is a gift given to someone who did nothing to deserve it. It's an act of kindness that is motivated by the heart of the giver despite the unworthiness of the receiver. And you may say amen to this or you may fight against it with every fiber of your being, but you are a sinner. And so am I. We have done nothing to deserve God's kindness. Acknowledge that and brace yourself because you're about to get grace bombed. Communion is a celebration shared by those who have been undone by the grace of God. We shake our heads in wonder that Jesus would pay so high a price to set us free. His body on the cross instead of ours. Him bleeding out so that our scarlet sins could be white as snow. How do you wrap your mind around that? We can't. All we can say is, thank you, Jesus, 
for such grace. I accept it. I need it. I will humbly and gratefully eat this bread that represents your body and drink this juice that reminds me of your blood because without it, I would have no hope. If that's what's in your heart, then I invite you to the table of the Lord today. Whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, Come and taste the grace of God. Let's pray. It is too... mind-blowing. Too miraculous. To be represented with words... What a, what a, what a poor uh, attempt I have made to put into words the amazing love that you have for us, Lord. But to the extent that we grasp your grace, we thank you for it. And we worship you today by taking communion. With all of our hearts, we say thank you, Jesus that you would do that for me. Amen.